This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. COP26 is underway in Glasgow and already, Fraser, people are talking about how it could be a flop. We've had the Prime Minister ultimately saying that climate is at one minute to midnight, expressing dissatisfaction so far in terms of what has been announced over the weekend. Is this an attempt to lower expectations or is Boris Johnson really trying to pressure those into moving? Well, we're hearing the traditional language over COP summits. Um, I, I remember Downing Street saying it was four minutes to midnight during the Copenhagen summit. So it seems that um, three minutes is a, a long time when it comes to these kind of things. And also, we're stuck into this rather sort of fake journalistic narrative here, the idea that you're going to bang heads together, they're going to agree. As I wrote in my Spectator article last week, the leaders around that table, it's not up to them to go to, to agree to sign this or sign that. They've got parliaments who will tell them what they will do. Joe Biden can't even get his plan passed Congress right now. Then there's the issue of democratic consent. And then if you're going to make any meaningful change on um, carbon emissions, you need the consent of China. And Xi Jinping isn't even turning up. He's not giving a video speech. He's just sending a written statement because he's got his timetable and it's not the same as Boris Johnson's. So what we're seeing is an act of theatre. And because it's just such a huge act of theatre, even journalists get sucked in and having to go along with it, making out as if there's going to be some great moment of drama, that there's real intensive discussions being have inside. They, they will be discussing things. They will, as Robert Peston writes on the Spectator blog, they might be agreeing something about phasing out coal by 2040, some little sideline issues, rather than the great big issue of, of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees by 2050, which would effectively mean net zero globally by 2050, which isn't going to happen. So right now I think we can see this for what it is, an act of diplomatic theatre and journalistic theatre. I mean, a lot of journalists were trying to get up there by train going from Houston to Glasgow and were unable to because uh, there was a storm and some trees have fallen down on the line. Now, I wonder how many of those journalists going up there would have taken the train rather than the plane to Glasgow previously. Because certainly if you're going um, from London to, to Glasgow on a work trip, you would get on the plane. But because it's COP, everybody goes through the motions of a train. And that's the the situation that we're in right now. I do find it journalistically quite frustrating because there are really important issues being discussed here. And it's very difficult to disentangle the theatre from the reality. Like, is there going to be a meaningful agreement? If so, what might it be? This one minute to midnight, four minutes to midnight language, which we've used constantly. I mean, Ross Clark for The Spectator did a list of how many times we've heard such language used in climate summits over the years. In what way is that meaningful? In what way can you just simply switch off from it? It's unusual that most journalistic titles are, are now see themselves as quasi-campaigners for this mission, which makes impartial scrutiny all the rarer and more difficult. James, when it comes to expectation management, it struck me, at least, that what we heard from Alex Sharma on Sunday, which is, you know, this is a really important match in the fight against climate change, is quite different to Boris Johnson, and who is almost saying, you know, we're about to miss what is our, you know, 
last good chance. Is there a difference of opinion between the two? I think there's a difference in rhetorical styles, certainly. Which points to? <laughs> no, which don't necessarily... I mean, it's almost like a naturally cautious politician. If you think back to those COVID news conferences when he took them, you know, he was not inclined for kind of big, expansive statements. Boris Johnson is inclined to big, expansive statements. I think there is an interesting question about the G20 and where that leaves things going into COP. Boris Johnson has lent quite heavily on the argument that, you know, what was agreed at the G20 was not enough and that they will need to do more in terms of the phase-out of coal and the like. I mean, there is, a, there is also, obviously, the level of international agreement here. There's not going to be a kind of deal in inverted commas. There won't be a moment when you walk away and say, oh, right, it succeeded or it hasn't succeeded. It, it is, and this might seem like a negative way of putting it, it, it is really about whether what started at Paris when the world said we want to keep climate change to 1.5 degrees. Can you credibly say at the end of this summit that that Paris process is still on track or not and and I think one of the other things which is the big question here is there are so many unknowns we're talking about what's going to happen between now and 2050 if you look at that International Energy Agency report recently it's making the point that lots of technologies required to get to net zero are either in development or not yet mature and so I think one of the big questions is you know what technology comes on to, to Fraser's point about how people were getting there can you get to a situation where you can have a kind of sustainable form of aviation fuel or can you have electric powered jets or hydrogen powered jets that mean that you can do this? You know, one of Boris Johnson's big arguments on climate change is it is entirely possible to do all this without a hair shirt in sight. And I think that probably in political terms, it probably has to be possible. You know, yeah, it will only be possible if you can do it without a hair shirt in sight, because all the polling suggests that even among voters who are concerned about it, they're not prepared to see their own personal standard of living cut in response to it. So I think a lot of this is going to depend on the technological solutions that become available in the next 10, 20 years. Meanwhile, the other story that has been rumbling on as world leaders have met uh, relates to a potential fishing war. And today, this morning, Britain has threatened legal action if France has not backed down from threats against British fishing within 48 hours. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has vowed not to roll over to completely unreasonable threats. Fraser, this is an upping of the ante, but is this just posturing on both sides that plays well to a domestic audience? Well, I think um, no British Prime Minister has ever done badly by sticking it to the French, and no French President has ever done badly by sticking it to les Anglais. And I think uh, right now you've got Macron is facing an election a bit sooner than Boris Johnson is, so we can expect a lot of this. Now, that said, the fishing settlements uh, post-Brexit was had lots of ambiguities. Those ambiguities are there to be exploited. There was always going to be tension. During the Brexit talks, the civil service prepared an exercise for Michael Gove, and that exercise envisaged a, a fishing war with France, and one of the things that Gove had to do in the exercise was come up with a statement to send his condolences to the family of the British fishermen who'd been shot dead by the French. So for some time now, they've been gaming this and thinking it could get nasty. You do get cod wars, they do get nasty. Um, shots have been fired in living memory in fishing wars. Now this one, it's tempting to dismiss it because when you look at it, it's relatively trivial. We're looking at 
sort of 55 French boats who can't prove that they had the, that they used to fish in British waters, therefore should get the rights now. But then again, there are some bigger structural tensions that do place Britain at loggerheads with France. I, as a, as a Europhile, I, I'm terribly distraught and dismayed when I see this sort of thing happening. I think it's... Um, I remember the... Um, when we were having this this fuss over Jersey a few months ago, and France was pr- threatening to turn off the electricity, and Britain was to Jersey, and Britain had sent two kind of Royal Navy boats there to discourage a French flotilla, and that was at a time when we were trying to present a united kind of G8 face to the world or a NATO face to the world. Now that sort of thing matters, and when you've got to we're in a situation where China could do anything at Taiwan at any moment. There's a whole bunch of countries wondering if the Western alliance means anything after the collapse of Afghanistan. When you've got Britain and France at each other's throats over relatively trivial things to do with fishing, I think it does diminish both nations in the eyes of the world. So yes, there's politicking there, but I think there's quite a heavy diplomatic price to pay. I see Macron put out a statement saying that we'd agreed to sort of de-escalate and Downing Street rebuffed that saying no 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 we're still going at it hammer and tongs so let's see what today brings. And James when it comes to the deadline Liz Truss has issued what are the things that we should look out for when we're trying to work out if this really is about to escalate? I don't think that I mean, just I don't think it's necessarily Liz Truss who's issued this deadline in that the, I know she said the 48 hours point but the, the French have said that these new measures will come into place on Tuesday right and so I don't I don't think she is creating a a new deadline. I think the tension here is that the British don't want to look like they're backing down in the face of kind of these French threats. The French are saying, well, if we don't get some movement, we will we will have we will follow through on our threats. And so, you know, you can see the the two sides appear to be heading for a mighty smash. And I think one of the problems is that UK EU relations generally are so fraught with all the talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, you've got today, for example, Lord Frost writing an introduction to a policy exchange paper on the protocol saying that the EU has destroyed cross-community consent for the protocol in Northern Ireland. You've got Seskovich, the EU vice president, handling the protocol issue, saying in the Telegraph that, look, he sometimes thinks the British just want to fight over it. They don't want to engage with any of the EU's ideas. And so because those relations are so bad that normally, I think, in a situation where an EU member state was essentially behaving in the way that France is, there would be a kind of quiet tap on the shoulder from someone saying, look, you, you can't follow through on this. The UK and the EU signed the treaty. What you would be doing would be in, in breach of it. But I think that right now, because UK-EU relations are so bad, that there isn't anyone to do that because things are so strained. And I think that you can also see that, you look at this row over the, the letter from the French Prime Minister Castex, and the UK wants to kind of almost use this as an argument to argue that the entire deal negotiated post-Brexit was was not negotiated in good faith because it was all negotiated with the aim of showing that the UK was, was worse off for leaving. So I think you can see all sorts of tensions coming together here. And one thing I do think is true is if you do start off with the French checking, you know, if we wake up on Tuesday morning and find that there are already big queues at Calais because all the British lorries are being checked... I think things could escalate from that situation much more quickly than people realise. And we could find ourselves in the new year when the French hold the presidency of the EU with a full-blown UK-EU trade war, not just over fishing, but the Northern Ireland Protocol and all sorts of other issues. And the UK-EU relations you know, it might, it might seem like they're bad now, but they could be a lot worse in a few months' time. So, so James, your eye is on what we wake up to tomorrow morning. You're saying, but, but by tomorrow lunchtime, 
we should know because that's the French deadline. Yeah. Whether the French are responding by taking this beyond trawlers and into border checks and trying to frustrate Britain's movement I, I, goods. I think, I think if by lunchtime traffic is flowing through Calais as it was before, it will be clear that whatever France has said it is not chosen to to use the most explosive threat. Maybe you know, if this is confined to fishing vessels, if this is confined to the French more aggressively demanding proof from British vessels that they're entitled to fish in those waters, and the UK doing the same. You know, the economic impacts of this will be will be relatively limited. It's if it starts to affect broader cross-channel trade, because the French start to to kind of carry out kind of fingernail checks at Calais on every British lorry, then the situation is going to escalate a lot more and a lot faster and have much more severe economic consequences. The two of them have just been photographed fist-bumping each other, actually, um, Boris and Macron, so maybe that's a sign of rapprochement. Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening.